Latter-day Saint Home Educators is pleased to bring you this audio presentation recorded live during the February 2023 online Midwinter Home Education Conference. My name is Regina Flake, and I am here uh, joyfully. Kara Rector and I are dear friends. And when she contacted me about this, I was so excited. I want to tell you a little bit about me and what brings me to this um, work. I do this professionally, although this is a wonderful experience where I'm able to be with like-minded folks who have been on a similar journey to the one I've been on. That's a joy for me. By profession, I am a social worker. I'm a parent educator in central Pennsylvania. Uh, counties contract with me and with my organization in order to help parents who are at risk from um, losing their children to the system. Or if the children have been placed, then I work with them to uh, acquire the skills necessary for the kids to be able to come home. In the first part of my uh, social work career that started 30 years ago, uh, I was I worked on the foster care side. And that's an entirely different thing that I do now. Family preservation is very important to me. So to be able to talk to folks who are so heavily invested with their children in time and purpose um, is a gift. So I'm thrilled to be with you. Uh, I saw Kara pop in and I'm not gonna put her on the spot, but I will tell you that when she and I talked about this, I explained that the biggest challenge we were gonna have is that I have a really hard time knowing when to stop talking. And I'm pretty, pretty persistent at being able to uh, talk for a long time at a pretty high level of decibels because I have eight children and 16 grandbabies. So I can, I can talk. I, we have a, I don't know how many people might come in or out as we do this, but I want to do some housekeeping as we get started. This is a fairly small group of us. This can be a very conversationally driven kind of experience, and that is what I prefer. I would like you to be able to get in at will and stop me and ask a question or back up or say, I didn't understand that. Uh, I want you to get out of this experience what you came for. So if we're missing it, stop and ask for it. Also, uh, I am a storyteller by nature. And so what we're going to do is a lot of storytelling. And some of this, the, uh, this presentation that I'm going to give you is what I teach to attorneys and to social workers and to staff members and also to families. Some of it will overlap um, a little bit. If I jump around a bit on our PowerPoint, I'll ask your forgiveness for that. But I want to ask you before we start, what is it you're hoping to get out of this? And please don't tell me that you are coming for the sticker chart about how to make your teen be compliant. I don't have such a thing. So I want to let you free to go, you know, watch the news or get a sandwich or something. If that's what you came for, you're going to be wildly disappointed. But what is it you're hoping to get out of this today? Well, I was just really interested in the title. Sorry, Melanie. <laughs> um, just, you know, having power with, working with your teenager instead of having power over your teenager and helping, you know, how to, how to do that. I'm excited to learn. Change the dynamic. That's, I'm glad, I'm glad that that interested you because really most of what we talk about is going to be in that bent. Anybody else? There's a message in the chat from Cecilia saying new tools and ideas. I'm going to give you some tools. 
just not a lot. I'm not a good behaviorist. And there is a place for that kind of thing. There's a place for sticker charts and they can be very effective. Um, Annie will be able to tell you that I've never been very good at those. And so we're going to talk more about the why and how we get our children invested in the why. And, uh, and then you can take from that what's valuable to you and leave the rest. Anybody else want to add before we jump in here? I'm looking forward to building confidence that I am going in the right direction with my kids. Well, then I'm super glad that Annie is here because I want to, to and, and my son Nick is going to pop in a little bit later. Uh, Nick often presents with me. I, I mentioned I'm, I've been a social worker for, or been in social work for 30 years, which makes my line that I'm 29 kind of implausible now. Right. So I've been 29, roughly 28 times. And what I've learned is that I'm, I'm at a further place. I'm on the same road. I've homeschooled all of our children at some point in their educational career. Some of them graduated from home, some from from a brick and mortar. But the one thing I've learned is that I carried way too much angst and worry during the time and sometimes didn't enjoy the ride. So if you don't get anything else from me today, I hope you get that. There was that old lady that came to the conference. She talked to us. She survived it. Her kids turned out okay. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. I want you to hear that and believe it. I, um, I love my children. We all love our children. It's a joyful thing when you start to like your children and you, and you recognize that you would choose them as friends if they hadn't been given to you as children. Uh, and we're certainly there with my kiddos. So I love this quote from Walt Whitman, and we're going to start here precisely because I am typically working in a secular environment. And I, although my faith, I believe, is present in every presentation I give, I don't usually get to talk about it as openly as I hope to be able to do today, right? So I'm dragging in some of those pieces of how I do this work from from my professional and secular side. And I want you to, to start with this idea that you should consider everything you're being told and then dismiss what insults your soul. Hold the pieces that are impressed upon you to hold them. There is no one who is better able to receive revelation for your children than you are, right? So if I say something that sounds a little off color to you, leave it. If you see something that you think is good, grab it and put it in your backpack, put it in your toolkit, take it with you. This is a, um, the, I do a presentation called the trauma tide and we start with this visual because I'm a visual learner. Anybody else in here a visual learner? Do you need to see it to, to get, I'm in that person. It really is important to me to get the picture in my head. And I talk to parents whose children have experienced a lot of trauma and they're having behaviors because of their trauma. And we talk about this image as being kind of a, a metaphor for parenting. If you have been to the beach, you know what this looks like. You are standing at the edge of the water as the tide comes in. And depending on how fast that tide is coming in, it might rush over you pretty quickly, make you feel a little off your feet. Similarly, as the water goes back out, there's that sensation where the sand that's under the pressure of your feet, kind of grains of sand move with the water and you feel like you're sinking a little bit. That is a really good metaphor. That movement that I am never standing in the same place twice. It's always moving, it's always changing, it's very fluid. That is the very definition of a parenting experience. 
The reason I chose this one, though, is because I want you to not forget that there's a beautiful beach. There is undoubtedly a lovely sunrise in front of you or a sunset in front of you. There is the smell of the water, the sound of the birds. There are all kinds of wonderful things happening in that moment. So I want you to, um, again, from the old lady who's a little bit further down the road, I don't want you to miss the opportunities to enjoy the chaos and to enjoy the drama and to enjoy the, the headaches and the pain and the mess of it. Um, because there is something uniquely beautiful about making this effort to educate your children that you only get in this way. You only get this relationship in this way. So enjoy the party. All right. These are loosely some, these are my objectives. And I heard more importantly what yours are, but here's some of the things we're gonna do here in the first hour. We're gonna define our why and consider your parent mission statement. I want you to uh, learn to recognize behavior as a form of communication. We're gonna learn some strategies for strengthening peaceful relationships and setting power with goals. I'm gonna introduce you to um, Glass, Dr. Glasser's choice theory. And I'll give you a resource if you want to learn a little bit more about it. Initially, when I constructed this uh, training, this presentation, I was a little heavier on the Glasser side and wanted to teach a little bit more about that. I felt impressed not to go to, too far down that rabbit hole. Uh, I will give you the resource. I'll tell you a little bit about it. You can certainly run it down and see if it, it's a good fit for you if you choose to. And then we're going to identify relational challenges in families. And we're going to talk about some common pitfalls, places that we can watch out for where we might slide off in the wrong direction. And I want you to learn to enjoy the waves. All right. Any questions about those things before we start? All right. This is something I just plagiarized entirely from that other presentation because it's a good introduction to our family and give you a little background about how we came to how I came to arrive at the places of belief uh, about homeschooling and education, and more importantly, about interpersonal relationships in our family and how they work. Um, and to talk about what the four pillars are that sort of hold up those parent-child relationships in my view. They are, um, if you look there to the right, you can see that we're going to talk about showing up, which is the power of commitment, empathy, which is the power of our shared experiences, relationship, which is the power of our time, and agency, which is the power to choose. And to talk about those four pillars, I'm going to tell you a couple of quick stories. So first of all, I want you to, this is a beach picture. I can't tell you how many uh, hair colors ago that was. I don't even know. But I can tell you that that, I can date the picture for you because those two cutie little patooties sitting between my husband and I on the next to the top step there, they are now 18 and 19. So that's how old that photo is. And it doesn't, this picture doesn't have, it has about half of the crew present, but it was a good one because it's, it's folks I want to talk about behind their back. So it's good that they were there. Oh, and Annie's on that picture too, Annie. So I, I don't have to talk about you behind your back. Um, we'll talk about my parents who are sitting at the top of the staircase there. And I wanted to start by telling you that I didn't meet my father until I was 40 years old. And you might be wondering if I didn't meet him. Oh, Nick's here too. Hey, baby. If I telling you I didn't meet him until I was 40, you might be wondering how he showed up in my beach photo. I'll tell you a quick story about that. So my mother sitting there to his beside him uh, was and is a remarkable soul. She's creative, she is strong-willed, she's opinionated, she is bright, um, she's she has a raging sense of her free agency. We'll say it that way. 
And my mother back in the 60s owned a beauty shop in our little community in Western Pennsylvania where uh, cows are, have a higher per capita than people. And my mom uh, decided one day that she really wanted to go to Graceland and see where Elvis lived. And so she shut down the shop for a week and she went on a road trip to uh, see where Elvis lived in her yellow T-Bird convertible. And on that trip, she met a young naval officer who was en route from San Diego to Trenton, New Jersey, because he was on leave and he was going to see his family. They met at a diner. They spent a, an afternoon together um, getting to know each other. And that was the beginning of a long distance relationship for them. And in the spring of 1963, my father sent a message to my mom that he was being deployed to Vietnam and he had three weeks of leave time before his deployment. And he wanted my mother to come to San Diego. He wanted to put her on a plane, have her come out and be with him before his deployment. And she did that. She came home from, um, maybe this is the point at which I should say that we're, my family are all converts to the church. Maybe that's the point at which I should say that. My mother came home from that uh, visit to San Diego in those three weeks with my father with a beautiful diamond engagement ring and pregnant with me. Now, for those of you who haven't celebrated your 29th birthday more than once or twice, the importance of that or the significance of that may not rest on you the same way it does for some of us older folks. But I want to tell you that in the early 60s, in that small community in Western Pennsylvania, to be single and unmarried was a horrific thing, really horrific thing. And my mother um, had opportunities to explore options that would not cause her to be a parent, and she didn't. So she showed up. She showed up for me. The most important thing you do for your children as a parent is to show up, whether you show up with your hair mess, in your yoga pants, not in your best mood, but you are showing up. That is the primary pillar that we build good parenting on. All right. The next part I'll tell you about this um, story is that my father, in, in the years that followed, um, my father, we, uh, we had no connectedness with him. Uh, and that was because he disclosed to my mom that he was actually already married and had a child. And my mother was furious. And so she, we, there was never any further contact with him. I was raised in a loving family with good supports and grandparents who loved and cared about me, but always that wonder who my father was. And um, I just want to, I want to share that back in 2004, um, my mom, who was doing a lot of genealogy and family history, my mother called me at work and said, I did a public record search on your dad. I think I found him. Would you like to talk to him? I did. Uh, 18 hours after I had that first conversation with him, he arrived at my house. He was a widower and my mother was a widower. And three months after that initial meeting, they were married and my father lived here with us until he died in 2014. Now, some people have said to me, oh, that's such a story. You should write a book. It's like a lifetime movie. I, who would believe that? Who would believe that? That's not marketable. No one would find that to be a plausible plot line, would you? But I want to say to you that when my, I want you to look at this picture and see the young man. We're going to talk about him a little bit more. But this young man here on the right, on, on our right, as we're looking at it, the one with the beret on, that's our eldest son. Our eldest son also has a raging sense of his free agency. And I came to know that the first night my dad arrived at my home, my son kind of pulled him aside quietly and said, don't make my mother cry or we will haul you to the curb. Don't mess this up. You've had 40 years to figure it out. Don't mess it up. My father very well could have said, ah, this is too much. I don't want to do that. 
I'm going to go to the Holiday Inn. I didn't sign up for this stuff. Because remember, now he's the old man. He is no longer the young and cocky uh, naval officer. He crossed the threshold that night, not knowing what that relationship might be. And that was the first time my father offered me the gift of showing up. And that's important. I tell you that story because I want you to get connected to this. There will be moments where you feel insecure, inadequate, unworthy, uh, unable, weak, tired, exhausted. And the only requirement of you to invest in that relationship and to build it is to show up. All right. Next piece really quickly is empathy. Again, I'm going to draw your attention to those two little kiddos sitting between us and just point out, if you look at that picture of all of us, it is difficult. If I told you there four of those kids were mine and the rest of them married in, you would have a hard time telling which one's married in, wouldn't you? We all are fluffy white folks. We're all, you know, genetically, we're all kind of vanilla. Except for the obvious beautiful little faces there on the second step from the top. They have not um, been raised in families that were like the ones they were born to. Their parents' faces don't look like theirs. Their siblings' faces don't look like theirs. Their cultural experiences are different. The ge geography of where they lived was different. The music they might have listened to is different. The churches they've gone to is different. So in order to create empathy, what is required to create empathy is not that I've had the same experience as you, but that I can find some experiences similar and I can connect to it and look through that lens. I cannot know what it's like to be parented by someone who doesn't look like me. I can understand what it's like to have a parent missing from my life. So I can connect and view through that lens of empathy. We're gonna talk about how empathy relates to parenting. Next one is relationship and the power of your time. This one is, I'll, I'll go back to my dad and just tell you briefly that my father, I gave him a, a journal. I gave him a journal and I asked him to spend some time writing in that journal Everything I would have known, everything that would have been my endowment had I been, had I grown up in his, in his presence or knowing him. I want to know about my grandparents. I want to know about my siblings. I want to know where you went to school. What were your favorite subjects? What was your first job? Who was your first girlfriend? Everything. And he undertook the writing of that journal. And when he passed, I found the journal, took it with me to the beach. <laughs> and I sat in a quiet place near the water and I was reading that journal and I got to the middle and he was mid-story and that was the last entry and I think I I looked towards heaven and said seriously like I ask you for one thing dude I ask you for one stinking thing I can't emphasize enough how the power of your time is foundational relationship gifting your children of your time is more valuable than any other endowment you can or legacy you can give them and lastly is the power to choose. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the power to choose and agency. Again, I'm going to reference you back to my eldest son and two of his siblings are here. And I'm sure that there's going to be a phone call to him later to say, mom did it again. She was talking about you in public. But this story that I'm about to tell you is the stuff of family legend. And it's important for today's topic. When Justin was in middle school, he had the notion that it, he looked really awesome and cool if he sagged his pants. And he also got himself a really cool little chain that attached to his wallet. And he would sag his pants. And then he had that cool chain that would kind of swing, making sure that no thief would run by, I suppose, and steal the lunch ticket, which was the only thing that was in that wallet. But it was chained to his body for protection. 
Now, our bus stop was about a half a block from our house. And so when he left the house, after following a lot of conversations about where his pants belonged, his pants were appropriately around his waist. By the time he got to the bus stop, his pants were where he wanted them. And there was a lot of back and forth about that. We had exhaustive conversations. I'm going to insert here that my husband is one of eight children and I was an only child. So my husband had a, a parenting policy that was do it because I said so. And if I feel like explaining it to you later, maybe I will. My parenting policy was if they understand why, if they understand the why, they'll be compliant. So I will just talk about it with them. Sometimes my children were compliant just to shut me up. They got exhausted hearing my counsel. I see you, Nick. I see the face. Um, so we had very different notions about what that looked like. But Justin felt like he was pulling one over on everybody. So on one occasion, I had him come home and he got into, we, we had a 15 passenger van. I said to the kids, load up everybody in the van. We're going to go for groceries. I have to go back inside and grab my wallet. I went back inside. I was wearing a green turtleneck shirt. I removed my bra and I put it on the outside of my green turtleneck shirt. And then I took a nice, slow, long walk out onto my porch, down off the porch and into the driveway, did a few laps around the van made sure the neighbors saw me. And my middle schooler was in the backseat of that van, cowering, cowering, saying something to the effect that I have friends in this town. I have friends in this town. You seem to think that your friends don't want to see my underwear. I know for a fact that my friends don't want to see your underwear. Perhaps we could negotiate a settlement that we can both live with. This is important because we're going to talk a lot today about what are negotiables and what are not negotiables. What are things that we can meet in the middle with our children and things we can't? What is, um, I got compliance after that, but I tell this story and I, I hope that Nick and Annie will also share with Justin. I have, in my wisdom as an older mother and parent, I've learned something. Justin was just the kind of kid that could have very likely said, go ahead, wear your bra outside your shirt to Walmart. I don't care. And had I gone down that road, then I needed to decide, was I ready? Was I ready to go down that road or not? So we're going to talk about the consequences of the things that we choose. Before we move on, anybody have any questions or thoughts about any of that? I've scared you off. This is probably the least. I, I'm, I'm not a terribly great Molly, I'll just tell you. I have survived, though, eight children, 16 grandbabies. So I have some things to share, but... Um, this might be the most raucous presentation that's happening today. If you have questions as we start or you have thoughts or comments, please jump in. Don't want to miss you. I'd like us to start by framing what we're doing here and what's most important. I love that that was the, I, I was actually going to title the slide that and then I thought that's plagiarism. I'm stealing from the, the conference line, but that is really the entire thing we're talking about here. What is most important? Is it most important to you that you produce a volume and quality of work that your evaluator will be impressed and think that you are a super homeschooling mom? Is it most important to you that your child is the most advanced mathematician in their class or in their cohort of friends? Or is there something else? And I want you to come to this conversation remembering who you are in the timeline from when we left the presence of our father until we returned to him, where we are on the walk home. 
And when we think about that, I want you to realize that there, there's about, when we consider time and eternity, there's probably a hot 10 seconds between the time I got sent and the time my children got sent. Now, I'd like to remind my children that Heavenly Father sent me first. So there was obviously some purpose in that. And I'd like to point out to them the fact that I got sent first means that I had something to teach you. So you would do well to be quiet and hear and listen to me. Again, in my long in the tooth wisdom that I've acquired over the years, I've come to understand that I have learned as much from them as I gave them. And I want you to come into every conversation with your children where you are creating these relational expectations around their education or anything else, remembering that they have something for you and you have something for them. If you lose the humility to say, what did I come here to learn and what did I come here to teach? These conversations become very difficult, more, more um, abrasive, less loving, less filling, less nourishing to those relational pieces that you have. So want you to stay in that place. What did I come here to learn? And what did I come here to teach? I love these pictures. I won't spend a lot of time about this, but I want you to look at this picture. This artist does this where they take a photograph of a person in their youth. And then as an old person in real time, looking back at themselves in the mirror. And in the background somewhere is their child looking at them as they are in the present day. This is a powerful visual for me. I love, I love this. I know who I was. And in a lot of ways, my husband and I got married very young. So I was I was an 18-year-old bride, which is pretty, pretty young. 17 when I met him, married him three months later. So I had just turned 18 by about five minutes. In a lot of ways, I am still that person. I know who she is. She's still in there. I still have her. But my children looking at me today don't know or appreciate that I can see or relate to those things, do they? They don't see me that way. So bringing that into view and remembering who you are in the story to them and who they are in the story to you and who you are in the story to yourself is a valuable tool for us to use as we get into conversations about relationship. All right, I wanna stop here and give it a, give, I wanna invite um, Nick or, and Annie, I didn't, you or ask you, but if you have any stories you would like to tell, I'm happy to um, have you tell them. But Nick, can I ask you to hop in here and give us an example of a time when there was a growth relationship conversation, where there was a conversation that happened over something that caused you to feel like we were giving you some autonomy and you had a moment of growth or one of your siblings, whomever. Okay. So some of you may or may not know that for a time when I was younger, uh, my parents had decided to homeschool me and my siblings. And that conversation happened a couple of times. Uh, my older brother was homeschooled for a while when he was younger. Um, I had been in public school for quite a while and around my sixth and seventh grade year, uh, it became kind of obvious that we needed to step away from that for a while. Um, so I was homeschooling with my siblings. Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, I had. Uh, developed an interest in playing sports and participating in the music programs that were uh, I was ex excluded from as a homeschooling student. And so I had talked to my parents and, and told them that I would like to go back to school uh, in a public school environment so I could participate in those programs. And that sparked some conversation that um, was unsettling because my last experience there was not great. 
And so uh, my, my parents and I had met together and, and counseled together and said, we're, we're going to pray about it and um, see what we come up with. And so we, we both separated and came back. And my parents were of the opinion that I should stay doing the homeschooling thing. And I was still of the opinion that I should go back. Um, and so we met in a kind of a common ground there and said we were going to finish out that school year doing homeschooling. And if I still felt that way in the fall, uh, they would support me returning. And I ended up ended up being able to do that and participating in um, the you know varsity programs and the football team and um, the honors choir and orchestra, all the things that I wanted to do. Uh, and made that transition mostly seamlessly. Um, <laughs> a couple of hiccups along the way, but um, but also with the full support um, from my parents and kind of allowing me to choose my own path um, with their support, even though it wasn't what they would have chosen for me. So that was that was a good opportunity for me. I appreciate that, Nick. And I, I want to just, this is a good segue. We're going to listen to this general um, conference talk that was 1983, by the way, which makes me feel, when I realized how long ago that was and where I was as a, a parent, I was a brand new parent. Justin was an infant in 1983. So I, I thought I was doing pretty well, but boy, this caused me to reflect about how much I've learned since then. One of the things I want you to listen for in this talk is something that Nick sort of described, and that is that there is a there is a dance that's involved from the moment your child draws their first breath, right, until they become independent and autonomous and living on their own. There is this dance that occurs between the child and the parent where the child is trying to take their autonomy and hold it for themselves, their responsibilities and explore and challenge and push into and test the limits and learn all the things. And there is great belief that they can do it better than anybody else. And there is our need to keep them safe in that effort. So it's this constant dance that we're doing. And the joy and the frustration happens in the dance. We step on each other's feet a lot during the dance, don't we? And I want you to listen to these words and consider that as we move forward. I thank the choir for that beautiful number. I have a message for parents about the education of your children. Several weeks ago, I had in my office a four-star general and his wife. They were very impressive people. They admire the church because of the conduct of our youth. The general's wife mentioned her children, of whom she is justly proud, but she expressed a deep concern. Tell me, she said, how are you able to control your youth and build such character as we've seen in your young men? I was interested in her use of the word control. The answer I told them centered in the doctrines of the gospel. They were interested, so I spoke briefly of the doctrine of agency. I said we develop control by teaching freedom. Perhaps at first they thought we start on the wrong end of the subject. A four-star general is nothing if not a disciplinarian. But when one understands the gospel, it becomes very clear that the best control is self-control. It may seem unusual at first to foster self-control by centering on freedom of choice, but it is a very sound doctrinal approach. While either subject may be taught separately, and though they may appear at first to be opposites, they really are part of the same subject. 
Some who do not understand the doctrinal part do not readily see the relationship between obedience and agency, and they miss one vital connection and see obedience only as restraint. They then resist the very thing that will give them true freedom. There is no true freedom without responsibility, and there's no enduring freedom without a knowledge of the truth. The Lord said, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The general quickly understood a truth that is missed even by some in the church. Latter-day Saints are not obedient because they are compelled to be obedient. They are obedient because they know certain spiritual truths and have decided as an expression of their own individual agency to obey the commandments of God. We are the sons and daughters of God, willing followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and under this head are we made free. Those who talk of blind obedience may appear to know many things, but they do not understand the doctrines of the gospel. There is an obedience that comes from a knowledge of the truth that transcends any external form of control. We are not obedient because we are blind. We are obedient because we can see. The best control, I repeat, is self-control. The general knew then why we teach our children the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ and where they get the resolute determination to protect individual freedom. Responsibility for teaching the doctrines rests upon parents. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake the evil one. I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. If all your children know about the gospel, if all they know is what you have taught them at home, how safe will they be? Will they reject evil because they choose to reject it? As a young man in that's um, that is all that clip that I I'd like us to take a minute and just if you can unmute and process this with me. I got chills when I listened to that the first time. I get chills when I listen to it every time. The truth is that um, I could probably just, we could sit here together and listen to Elder Packer and what he has to say about agency and control and say amen and we could leave a little bit early. There's not much more to the thesis statement here than what he just said. I'd like you to take a second and think about, you came into this, session with us today because you are in the role of parent and educator to your child. I want you to think about he who is your parent and your educator. And I want you to spend a moment thinking about how he has dealt with you in moments of rebellion or disappointment because that is the model that I want you to be able to leave here thinking that is the standard by which I want to approach my own child, okay? Um, this conversation about agency and control 
is a pre-mortal conversation that happened in the pre-existence, and we are simply continuing the conversation here in mortality. And we are testing out, what does it look like? And we know that there was a thought that we could compel someone. Wouldn't it be great? We'll just compel them to do the right thing. That is the definition. The adversary is the definition of power over. The Savior's way has always been to create power with and to do so with great long suffering and always with an eye to teaching me to choose what is in my best interest and to choose to follow because that is really what the mission statement is. Do we agree with that? Okay. Anybody want to weigh in on this, um, what you got from this clip? Can I just make sure I have the right reference? Elder Packer, 1963. Is that what you said? 83. I am not that old. <laughs> but yeah, 1983 general conference and and please go go listen to the whole thing it is stirring it is really stir i've never heard um i don't remember this talk and when i was preparing this i was in tears because this is so appropriate it is so foundational to everything we come to this work to do if you were motivated to pull your children out of the system and to educate them at home then you are already in the mindset that you have something greater to teach them than simply to read or to write or right? There's something much more profound happening, something much more, a greater eternal import. So to always be asking yourself, what is it that I'm here to teach? And what is it that I'm here to learn? And often what we're here to teach is about the opportunity for a child to exercise their agency and fail and exercise their agency again and fail and learn, try, do, come back. Because that's the model that our father uses with us. All right. Anybody else want to weigh in on that one? So I have a I have a thought, and it's it's um, deep thoughts from Kara Rector today. Is I feel like it can be really hard to detangle how we feel that Heavenly Father has dealt with us when we've done things that are difficult in rebellion versus. I'm a big proponent that we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and then there's the church and the church is, has human fingerprints all over it. And when you hear messages of, um, that shame-based messages, how do we what's a good way to detangle that from how our father in heaven really feels about us when we make mistakes. Um, an example that I had, and I'll try to say it without crying because it still it was a long time ago, but it still brings me to tears. I have a, a special needs daughter who's was very, very difficult for me when she was younger. And I was really struggling to try and figure out how to discipline her and there were moments where I, I just went too far. I was a little too mean and too physical. And it was just really, really hard. And I just remember the spirit saying, you went too far. And right as that feeling of shame came in was also a feeling of love. More, it was Heavenly Father saying, you went too far. I need you to know so you can move forward and, and do better. And that, that shame wasn't there because the spirit was so loving because heavenly father was so loving to me in that moment. 
And that's definitely how I want to treat my kids. But it's also so messed up in my head sometimes and with other people that I know, when you've heard shame, if you make a mistake for so long, how do you learn something else and then trust that that something else is is true I don't know if that made a whole lot of sense but there's my deep thought it does and I'm grateful for your deep thought because it's good first of all and we can come back in the second half if if y'all aren't somebody go find, we'll take a break you need to go find some excedrin maybe and some chocolate you need to be able to get through the afternoon sessions or always stopper but I want you oh, there you go okay but I, I hope you you're able to come back and join us for the second session we're going to talk about how you tease out what is the litmus test for those positive sustaining in the light kind of responses and the ones that slide off into the side of darkness and where I don't want to be the too far side. Okay. So we're going to try and give you some litmus tests of how you can define that. The other thing I want to say is just that let's talk about shame and guilt and how the father deals with us just a minute on a topic that's not nearly as heavy as disciplining a child. In my mind, I identify as a size four 20 year old. We can agree that the world does not see me as a size four 20 year old. Now, I don't have control to make myself a size four 20 year old, but I do have control to make choices about what I eat, whether I exercise, do I get enough sleep? Do I take care of my mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health? All of those things are in my purview. Do you know what I've learned about that? I've learned that my father loves me enough to let me suffer the natural consequences of the decisions that I make. That's an act of love. That's an act of saying, I, that's not what I want for you, but if that's what you want for yourself, go try that. And if you decide that's not what you want, come back and let's talk about it. I'll see if I can help you do something else. Right? That's, that's the the vein that we want to stay in. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Anybody else want to weigh in on the video? I hope you get a chance to go read the, read it or uh, listen to him speak. There's something wonderfully um, peaceful that came over me when I was listening to him speak. So I encourage you to do that if you get an opportunity to. We're going to set up our conversation for our next session. How do you like my push me pull you? Isn't he great? Everybody knows Dr. Doolittle and, and you know about that push me pull you. It is the infamous two-headed llama, unicorn, whatever it is. Our relationships with our children kind of sometimes feel like the push me pull you. It is the cause and effect. Think about um, the statements that I'm sure all of us can pull up a bucket full of them. Clean your room or you're not watching TV, get your homework done or you're not having friends over this weekend. It is the either or. It is the you will do or this will happen. The cause and effect. Anybody do any kind of parenting that looks like that or am I the only one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of us, most of us do that. Oh, I was going to say you're definitely the only one. <laughs> <laughs> no, just we're probably, you know, we're not, we're not as rare a beast as the push me pull you. There are probably a few, a few of us laying around trying to pretend that we only have one head, but we are the push me pull you. 
Um, I want us to talk a little bit about how effective that is and the role for power over, because there are times when power over is a necessary component of parenting. I can think of a few examples, and maybe you can think of a few examples. There are some things that I will not take time to explain or process with my child. If he is running towards a hot stove and is about to grab something and injure himself, I will not say, maybe you'd like to process that with me first and talk about your options. What would I do? That is a power over moment. This is not going to happen. You're not going to do that. And there's a conversation to be had about why I did that in the aftermath, because I love you and I don't want you to be hurt. So then there's some processing that can happen. But there is a place for power over. In the um, work that I do, I'm working with families who have system involvement. So the county has, in many cases, taken their child or they are involved with the court for dependency. And that entire system is a power over system. You will do what I tell you to do. You'll meet your goals and objectives. And if you don't, I will remove your child or your child will not return to you. Um, sometimes that is what society views as necessary. I, I never think it's the best way to do it, even though it's a system I'm involved in. But that is sometimes necessary, particularly if a parent is putting a child at risk. I have a, I have a significant drug addiction, alcohol addiction, or I am behaving in a way that puts my child at physical risk. That is the same analogy as someone who is headed towards a hot stove, and I'm going to preemptively stop you from doing that. So power over is, has a place. Also, your employer exercises power over you. If you don't show up for work and put in your time, you don't get a check cause and effect, power over. There's a contractual kind of obligation. I want us to think about power over as opposed to power with, though, in this visual image of, of fire. So a match is the equivalent of power over somebody. And by that, I mean it has a potential energy output and it has a, a very limited efficacy, very limited lifespan. So I strike the match and it will burn until the fuel is consumed or the wind blows. And when either one of those things happen, that fire is out, right? In that sense, power with is not our best move. It doesn't cause growth, it isn't alive, it doesn't cause spontaneous direction of movement for that child to grow into a self-motivated or internally motivated individual. The bonfire, on the other hand, as long as it keeps being fueled, will continue to grow. If it has the oxygen, it has the fuel, and the heat has been applied, that has the potential for unlimited growth and potential. And we want to stay in the place where we have the bonfire, not just the match. Remember the mission statement. Remember what it is you're trying to accomplish. What am I here to learn and what am I here to teach? And I'm going to, um, as we wrap this section up, I'm going to ask Nick to share a story. If you, Nick, are you still with us? Are you able to share your um, story about Brindley in the park? Yeah, sorry. I, um, just as a as we're having this conversation, um, you know, I I find myself doing a lot of single parenting lately, and while I'm sitting here doing this with all of you, my three year old. Uh, climbed up on the couch with a copy of the um, children's scripture stories from the Old Testament. And my daughter is trying to get me to tune her um, princess ukulele. So, um, you know, drastically different things, right? Um, not sure how that fits in any of this, but all, all that to say, you don't have to do it perfectly. Um, showing up is, is really the most important thing. 
Um, but during during one of these uh, experiences I've had recently um, of doing this the solo parenting thing, I had an opportunity to take my kids to the park last summer. And there's this really nice trail that walks down next to a stream that I like to go fishing on. And uh, it's recently been cleared and it's, it's um, child friendly for the most part. Uh, and there's all these different off ramps kind of things built into this trail so you can get off the trail and down to the water to, to fish. And so I took my kids back to, to one of my favorite places to go play in the water and to hang out for a while. And as we were coming back out, um, a couple of my kids had decided they wanted to run ahead. So my, my two oldest boys were up ahead of us. I was carrying uh, my youngest daughter and my four-year-old and my three-year-old were walking together on the trail. And my, my three-year-old boy decided to stick with me and walk along the trail. And my four-year-old daughter um, started wandering around trying to find her own place. And while she was doing that, um, had a, an accident. And she found herself walking off the trail and onto a place where she thought she should be. And as we were walking out of the park, she said, Dad, I'm stuck. And I've taken the wrong path and I don't know where to go. And I've had that conversation. So it was kind of fun um, to be a dad on the other side of that and to look back at my daughter and say, you're not as far off as you think. You can't see where you're going. And that's okay. So I said, just look down. Um, this, this path is very sandy and soily. And so everywhere you walk, there's footprints everywhere. So just look down at the ground and look for my footprints. Take a couple steps back and find yourself a way to get up to where I am. And she very cheerfully looked down and said, oh, I see where you are. And, you know, took a couple steps backwards and found herself by my side and, and walking out the rest of the way to the park. Um, and I thought about that experience for a long time after that. Um, Never realized how much a four-year-old could teach me as a parent. Um, but how many times I've had that conversation with Heavenly Father, too, and just saying, I took the wrong path, and I can't see where I'm going. I'm so glad you told that story. I'm so grateful. I I, I hope it's okay that I share this, but Nick, is um, he has five kids under seven, and all of them are are sick. So he is, you know, tending sick babies and still was willing to do this with me today. And I, I was telling him, we don't need to, I'll be fine. I know that's, you know, I, I know the story, I can tell it. And um, you need, you needed to tell it. I needed to hear you tell it. So thank you for that. This is um, where I'd like to leave our, the end of our first session here is to consider <clears throat> that you are both the child and the parent always. And to think about the ways that your father deals with you. And I love what Nick said, that image, that visual image, and this speaks directly to Kara's thought about how do I, when I get off the path, when I've gone too far, when I've done it poorly or I've done it wrong, I hope you remember this story and can catch that image of your father smiling at you and saying, you're okay, you're not that far off. Take a couple of steps back and watch for my footprints and then come to where I'm at and I'll wait for you. 
Um, if you find yourself questioning how to do the things we're going to talk about in the next session, know that there is no right or wrong that I can teach you, but the spirit will walk beside you every second, helping you understand where the footprints are that you could be following. Um, as we close this out, I'll identify just so we don't come have to come back to the slide. We're going to differentiate between negotiables and non-negotiables. So I'm gonna, we're gonna teach you how to, or we're gonna talk about how you can ask a series of questions to get to the place you need to be to mitigate behavior. And those questions are, what do I need? And what I need is my non-negotiable. I need you to be safe. I need you to be okay. I need to know that whatever it is, these are the non-negotiables, this is what I need. And then what do I want? What am I looking for in that situation with that child? And then I want you to ask those same questions from the child's perspective. What does the child need? And what does the child want in that situation? When we do that, we're gonna to try to learn some tools for negotiating the place in the middle, all right? So I'm hoping everybody's back. <clears throat> and if not, please, um, we'll just, we're gonna go and we'll, circle back if we need to, if there are any questions. We have some folks who weren't in the first session with us, so welcome. Uh, if you have any questions, stop me and let me know. I'm happy to try and catch you up. So where we left off was with that dialogue that we're gonna, those questions that we're gonna ask. What do I need? What do I want? What does my child need and what does my child want? And we're gonna talk about how we discern what's negotiable and what is not negotiable. And we're going to figure out if we can, um, well, let's do this. If I was with you, if we were in person, this is the part where we would get to do one of these experiential kind of games. We'd learn something. But since I'm not with you, I'm going to have to talk you through it, which is not hardly anywhere as fun as if we got to play, but that's all right. You'll get the idea. We're going to do a push-me-pull-you exercise. And I want you to, to imagine you are doing this with your problem child. If you only have one, then bless you, that's great. But a child with whom you might have some difference of opinion or matter that is in contest or conflict. And we're gonna give you a set of rubber bands, one for him, one for you. I'm gonna tie them with a knot in the middle. The game is played thusly. You have a picture there on the right side of the screen that has two circles. One circle represents your child's quality world, or the things he wants and needs. What, what are they? And the other circle is your quality world. What would it look like if you got everything you wanted? The game is played by putting the circle over the space in the middle between the circles, and then to get that knot into your circle, that's how you win. Okay. Does this game make you nervous as I'm describing it? Are you sitting there thinking, I'm glad I did? I, I would hate this. I would, I would say, no, I'll just be an observer. That tension of having that rubber band snap back and hit me, it's not my idea of a fun time. I would be not thrilled with this game. But of course, you can imagine that that's what's happening, right? We're tugging on that string or on that rubber band, or we're trying to get it into our circle and the closer I get to my circle, the harder that child's gonna pull. And that rubber band is being stretched and it's taut and it's gonna break, or I'm gonna let loose of it, it's gonna snap him. I might do that if I'm feeling particularly evil. So 
what if I told you that there is a way <clears throat> for you to both win? There are no rules involved with the game other than I want you to figure out how you both win. Give me some ideas. Anybody have a thought about how you can both win? Untie the knot. That's creative. That's pretty good, but that's not where I'm going. I got, we're still in this together. If I, if I think about this metaphorically, if I untie the knot, then I throw up my hands and say, do what you want. Put your knot in your own circle and I'm not going to worry about it. And just as a matter of personality, I don't have the capacity to do that. So I'm going to say I can untie the knot. What else could I do? Any thoughts? So would you, would the knot still need to be put in both circles or in someone's circle to win? It has to be in both, the knot has to be in both circles, over both circles. Fold the paper in There you go. There it is. That's <laughs> the thing. You're going to be, I'm going to tell you how, who, who came up with that? Because I can't see y'all. Stephanie. Okay, well, Stephanie, you are the master negotiator that whatever problem you came into this class with, I have now decided you no longer have that problem because you understand the goal, what we have to do here. This is the way the game is played. It's to make sure that we both get what we need. Does that mean that we will both get everything we want? Probably not. So it's important that you learn to discern what are the things that I really need in this moment that are not negotiable. So if my child comes to me and says, in my quality world circle, I have the ability to stay out till 2 a.m. I have a cell phone that I can do whatever I want to on, and you will not question me about my behavior or my activities. Is there any middle ground that I can find there? Or is he asking me for everything that needs to be negotiable? All of those things are negotiable that he gave me. I need to hear from him. What is your non-negotiable what's the thing you absolutely have to have in this conversation and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about glasser to figure out how we discern that and how we because all of the all of the behaviors are about getting a need met so we're going to talk about how do we get our needs met how do we decide what those needs are this is a another visual that i really love and appreciate i like this we talk about behavior in children I want you to imagine that you and I are in a little canoe and we are floating up there to the iceberg. And we're looking at that iceberg and we're saying, boy, that's a big iceberg. What can we do? We're going to get out. I'm going to give you an ice pick and I've got an ice pick and we're going to get out and climb on top of that iceberg. And we're going to start picking away until we remediate the iceberg. How long do you think we might be there? We might be there a while, right? That is probably not the most effective way to deal with the iceberg. Furthermore, the part that I can see is only a small percentage of the iceberg, right? The, the majority of the iceberg is under the waterline where I don't see it. I want you to think about this picture as behavior. The behavior is the stuff that breaks the surface. It's the part that we see, all right? So the obstinance, the refusal to do the work, the messiness, the whatever it is, the resistance to whatever you're asking to do. I don't know why when I talk about this in the negative, I always use the male pronouns. 
I have daughters who were obstinate and difficult too, but for some reason, I always go to the male pronouns when I talk about this. The part above the water surface is the behavior. The part under the water surface is everything that is pushing that to the top. Those are the unmet needs. Those are the needs that we're trying to get met that we can't figure out how to do it. And that stuff at the top are my best attempt to get my needs met, but I'm not doing very well. I want you to notice about the iceberg that the part that will sink our little boat as we approach it is under the waterline where we don't see it. This is important. The things when we approach a question about behavior with a child, it isn't nearly as important that we can chip away at the behaviors from the top down as it is that we learn to help them find a way to meet the basic need that's causing the behaviors to come up. That is where the relationship happens. That's where the attachment happens. That's where the growth happens. So our job is not above the surface. Our job is below the waterline to figure out what is the unmet need and how do I help them meet it? This is just the brief introduction to Glasser's Toys Theory. I'm gonna tell you, you can look up uh, William Glasser and there is a, a wonderful little downloadable PDF on like it's an introductory quick start to choice theory and reality therapy that'll help you understand some more of these concepts if you'd like to know more about them. But just the basic bent of it is, of all the people on the planet, who do you have control over? Anybody? Yep, that's it. You only have control over your, please nobody tell my husband because he still seems to think that I have some control and influence in his life. And I'd like to keep it that way. I enjoy it. He came to me this morning and he made me breakfast and he brought it to my room so that I could get working on my setting up my presentation. And I thought, I don't deserve you, but I'm keeping you. You can't go anywhere because we need that kind of support in our life. This is the basic primer of Glasser's theory. One is that I am only in control. I only have control, direct control over one soul, and that is myself. The next tenet is that all behavior is our best attempt to meet a need, okay? Now, I might have conflicting needs at times. I have a need to weigh 120 pounds. I also have a need to medicate with three musketeers bars. Those are conflicting needs, aren't they? They are negotiable. They are things that I can change my mind about and I can do differently, but those are conflicting needs. Well, if you go do the, uh, the little quick start guide for Glasser, there's a little survey in there that you can take, uh, which I was gonna do here with you, but I, I thought better of it. But it's basically a little questionnaire that will help you kind of learn where your highest areas of need are and what those each of those areas represent. I'm just gonna talk to you a little bit about that. The first one is survival. Second one is love and belonging. Third one is power. The fourth is freedom. And the last one is fun. I'm going to describe these a little bit to you. Survival is uh, that person, a person with high survival needs, is somebody who is never late for work, somebody whose checking account is balanced. It's someone who is diligent about making sure that things are done when they need to be done. They are things that people who like and appreciate order and safety. Okay. Um, I'm going to confess to you that. When I did my first needs assessment, 
I came out as a very needy person. I have very, I have very high needs in four of the five areas. Survival is not one of them. I happen to be married to somebody who has really high survival needs, and that's a good fit. That's a complimentary fit. All right. We do well when we have when we're working with somebody who maybe has um, needs that are complementary of ours or are different than ours. If we both have the same needs, sometimes that can be a challenge. And so knowing a little bit of what your child's needs profile is, is helpful when you go into negotiation. The second one of these is love and belonging. <clears throat> love and belonging are those folks who have a really high desire to be connected to family. Love and belonging needs are the people who get great joy and stability in those relationships and family or in personal relationships, could be at work or other personal relationships, but relationship is terribly important to people with high love and belonging needs. The third one is power. And this one's odd that they chose the word power. I wish they'd pick a different word because if I tell you that I have high power needs, that makes you think that I'm somebody who likes to tell other folks what to do and that's not what this is. People with high power needs have high need for competency. They wanna be able to do things well. They want to have an influence or an impact wherever they're working with their client or in society or within their family. They want to be able to have some kind of a positive impact on the world. That's a high power need. These people are also likely to enjoy the opportunity to share what they know or to help others to learn. So those are high power needs people. Next one is freedom. I'm going to tell you that um, there's a couple of reasons I'm a social worker and not an engineer. One is because I couldn't get past ALGE 2 on a bet. And so engineer was out, social worker was pretty much okay. I could handle statistics. The other one is that um, I don't have a schedule. I'm not showing up to a factory where I work from nine to five. I create my own schedule and I see my clients when it's mutually convenient for them and for me. And I love that. That's a high freedom need. Now, some things about homeschooling, depending on what day you would have asked me when I was homeschooling and who I was talking to, I would say I have so much more freedom as a homeschooler. I'm not tied to those typical routines. I don't, I don't have to show up and make a stupid sweater for the hundredth day of school. I don't have to do the PTO fundraisers. Whatever the thing is, I have more freedom. But the truth is that when I was homeschooling, I had a different set of constraints and that construct was not always free. I had to work at it to make sure that everything got done that needed to be done. So I have pretty high freedom needs. The last one is fun. Fun is uh, the obvious descriptor is you like to do things so that you enjoy and that can fall into a wide variety of things. But I want you to know that Dr. Glasser identified uh, one of the big things under the under the umbrella of fun was learning something new. I want you to think about that because that's powerful. There's a connectedness between intellectual growth and understanding and how the brain receives that and enjoys it. And us being able to bridge that or understand how that works for us ourselves and our children can make our homeschooling experience really better and different. Um, but anyway, so as I've described, I have really high love and belonging needs, I have high power needs, I have high freedom needs, I have high fun needs, I have miserably low deplorable survival needs. When I describe those things to you, do you get a sense about where you might rate the highest? Where do you think you're high? Somebody give me some feedback. Where do you think your highest 
area would be? And maybe where do you think your child would fall, their highest area? I think I've definitely got a kid that um, that has a power need, just the need to be competent. Um, and I'm probably on the survival side. And then um, definitely probably two that have very high fun needs, which probably isn't, I'm not super fun. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I gotta tell you, so I want you, I may, I want, I may not have described that as best as I should have or spent as much time. I love to paint. Art is a, is a wonderful creative outlet for me. So a hot party night for me is some watercolors and some good cold pressed paper and a quiet room. Right? So fun doesn't have to be loud and out there. It has to be something that is feeding that creative part of your soul or that physical part of yourself. Something that is really enjoyable for you and pleasant for you. Those are high buddies. But you said something interesting. You have a child that has a high power need and you think you have a higher survival need. Do you think that's a good, um, do, do, just tell me, do you think that's a good fit or do you see that there might be some bumps in that road? Um, sometimes I feel like there's some bumps there. Um, I just notice it a lot when uh he there's a struggle for him learning something or um, um at when he was public schooled he he was that person all the time because it was so easy and so now that we're meeting him meeting him where is that is tricky and um so yeah the sometimes we do buy heads over that a little bit okay that's a wonderful example and i'm gonna I, obviously this is not a, a clinical assessment but just with that little bit of you know information that you've given me let's push into this even as a hypothetical and say that there would be there could be some potential problems there my mother and i suffered this uh, particular challenge my mom felt I was very bright and she always wanted to keep me on the edge of my intellectual ability. She wanted to keep me always pushing a little bit harder. I had a really high need to be the biggest fish in a pond because I, I was at school usually, right? So if somebody kept saying, yeah, there's a bigger fish. Come on, there's a bigger fish. You gotta, you gotta go, you gotta swim, swim faster. There's a bigger fish. That was, a, that was a conflict and I didn't get my need met there. Now here's where this gets tricky. If you are able to identify, what is my base need? My base need is that I need to feel like I have somewhere in my life where I'm being told I'm competent, right? I have somewhere where I am the biggest fish in the pond for the moment. And mom has a need to make sure that I am living on the edge of my competency and I am continually experiencing growth that will meet my potential. Because that's her... She really wants that for me because she loves me. All right. So what are some ways that I we can both get our need met here? How do I fold the paper on this one? How's the way I can get the kid's power need met and still keep him on the edge of his competence or edge of his intellectual competency? So he's continuing to learn. Would this be an appropriate opportunity to have him? learn something that helps him stretch so that he can then teach it to somebody else so that he can 
move towards building, you know, greater power and competency in an area. Um, And that responsibility might feel also like competency. It might feel like, hey, I'm responsible to teach my little sibling, um, you know, how to load the dishwasher or whatever. And, you know, so that we kind of meld, you know, those two things. So you're doing that. That's a lovely way to pull the paper. And that's kind of where my mind went to. So if I want to inspire you to be internally motivated to keep moving, to keep learning and to stay on the edge of your competency, then I'm going to look for ways for you to be able to learn how to teach somebody else something within the family is wonderful. That's a wonderful opportunity. And when we have a big family and we're all together, that's a that's the natural fallback kind of default position I would say can you please you've read this book can you do a session for the kids on this storyline can you work up some materials for me can you whatever that looks like but also give them the opportunity to get out in the community to find those things that that get them that feedback for competency maybe they are teaching a merit badge class maybe they are holding a panel group discussion for the homeschooler support group. Maybe they are doing a newsletter. Maybe they are finding some other way where they're having that moment where they can say, in this thing, I was the biggest fish in the pond. And now I'm going to choose to go back and learn something else so I can bring it back out here and teach it again. That, that one really, that resonates with me. Anybody else have any thoughts about that? I gotta tell you, I hate that if we were together, I'd be strolling around the room and I would have the privilege of looking at your faces. And so this is really hard. I, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable with big pregnant silent pauses, but I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to get in the conversation if you want to. So let's move along to the next one and talk a little bit. I want Before we do, I want to go back to love and belonging. As we're evaluating where our kids' needs are and what, what our kids' needs are, what need are they trying to get met? I want to step out of the homeschooler bent and put my social worker hat on a minute. I want to give you a case study and I want you to tell me where you think this child that I'm about to describe to you, where does she fall in the, in the needs profile? Where are her highest needs at? I have a 14-year-old who is very promiscuous. She is engaging in behavior with the opposite sex. It's dangerous. She is out and about, can't be reasoned with where what is what is the need that she's trying to meet that is not being met what what's your knee jerk where do you go what do you think love and belonging that's the knee jerk anybody else vote for love and belonging because that's that seems like the obvious right or maybe freedom i was going to say the same thing i think it might be a, a pretty good combination of love and belonging and freedom love that what about fun could there be some fun mixed in there you know i also go ahead um i also feel like there could be depending on the the situation an element of a belief that that's survival that she needs that you know needs that love and belonging or, or relationship or that whatever that it's part of her ability to survive in a way all right what about power is there any any possibility it's power because we all know that you can make a a a teenage boy do anything you want him to do 
in three minute increments, right? Properly induced, you can have that ability to kind of create the narrative or the story that you want, even if you're making part of it up, right? You can stay in that place where you can have some power and, and the appearance of control over your existence. So you guys did a really um, quick, when I, when I present this, it usually takes much longer to get through that, but you guys did it almost instinctively, which is beautiful to see. You arrived at the obvious truth here that you want to restrain yourself from going for the obvious choice and spend a little bit of time thinking about what else could be under the waterline as that's an unmet need because it could be any one of those things that push that behavior above the surface. And likely it is a combination of those things, right? And the key to being able to negotiate how we get that need met really depends on being able to recognize where it lives and what it is, okay? So the girl that I referenced, uh, do you think it would be a good parenting strategy? Would I be teaching the, that parent? as my client, would I be teaching them that you just need to put a lock on her door. You need to, to put an air tag on her shoe. She needs to have 24 hour surveillance. We're gonna make sure that she is compliant and she's not doing these dangerous things. And we're gonna tell her that that's because we love her and we don't want her to get hurt. Is that gonna be effective? Why not? Because it's not meeting her needs exactly right this is the match and not the bonfire this is not self-sustaining i cannot sustain that i can't i can't watch you 24 hours a day i can't walk around and i boy when i realized that i couldn't control everything in my children's life i had a i had a panic-stricken moment and i was probably much further into parenting than you might think before it dawned on me that i didn't have control over everything that they did. The truth is, I only have control over myself. And if that child believes that that's the best way to meet her need, she's going to find a way to do it. So our only play, our only objective here is to be able to help her find a way to meet that need that she has, whatever it is, in a way that's safe for her and keeps our need to keep her safe and moving in a good direction that meets both of our needs. All right. Does that make sense to everybody? I know you're probably thinking this all sounds very complicated. It's really not. I, Nick and Annie are still here, but I wish um, there's a thing that happens in my family less now than when they were teenagers. But my children knew when we were going to have a an agency and control conversation because they always started with the same sentence. Nick, are you in here? Yes, ma'am. Do you want to tell them what the uh, what the sentence is, the control and agency sentence? What are you doing to get what you want? Is it working for you? And if it's if not it's, working, <laughs> what do you need to change to get what it is you actually want? What right? Is there if we could come up with a different way, would you be willing to try the different way? And I'm going to tell you that the minute, the minute mom says what is it you want there was this oh we are not having this conversation again but that put the ball in play i'm gonna let this be your responsibility you're gonna you're gonna have to help me decode what is it you want from the situation 
And how can we fold the paper so we both get what we need? If what you want is to not have to do any of your homework ever, I can't do that and be compliant with the law. So that's a non-negotiable. I have to have a certain amount of sample work that I can take to an evaluator and show that I've done the things I need. I don't know where everybody's at, but this was the way it was for us. So that would be a non-negotiable for me. If you're a, an unschooler and you're not constrained by your um, the laws in your school district or your state, then good for you. But that was my, my non-negotiable. I have to produce a portfolio. So I have to be able to have demonstrable evidence that I have taught you something during the course of this year. That's my non-negotiable. How we get there, though, is open for conversation. How do you think you would like to be able to get that need met? If what I'm doing is currently not working for you, me giving you a worksheet and you completing it at this time, what can we talk about that you would be willing to do or you think would be successful for you that would get my need met to have that evidence in my portfolio when I go for evaluation? Okay, you understand where we're getting to here? And because there's an interesting thing that happens when, the, when your children learn the mechanism of this dialogue. Because they know you're about to, um, they have served up the ball. No, I'm not doing it. And you're about to return it with a spike and say, okay, ball's in play. What's your idea? What do you want to do? Here's where we have to get to. I'm willing to go with you. This is that you're not that far off. Step back a little bit and look for some footprints and tell me how you get to where I am. I need you to be where I am. So let's do that. Let's have that conversation. What I want you to know is that when I've practiced these conversations with my children, there are two things that I can look back on now and reflect on that were really powerful. One is, um, I, Nick and I were talking during the break, and Annie, there was an, a, a, I can look back in my career as a parent, and I can identify a few landmarks where I can say, that was the first time I think I let go a little bit and, and pulled my child into the dialogue. And one of those such occasions was um, my husband was a cable TV guy. And it was Super Bowl weekend. And my husband was on call. And it was a terrible ice storm here in our area. You do not want to be the cable guy on call on Super Bowl weekend. Because if that TV doesn't work, people are very unhappy with you. So my husband was out and about trying to make sure everyone's Super Bowl parties were not going to fail. And we were at home with a basement that was flooding because the drainage was backing up. It was terrible. So I'm in a house with a bunch of kids and water that is slowly sneaking up my basement stairs. And I can't get a hold of my husband. And I'm just having a panic attack. And at this point, our, Nick, how old, how old do you think Justin was? I want to say he was probably still the pantsagger age. We were probably in middle school. Yeah, he, was, he was like 14, maybe. Yeah, I was, I was still in elementary school. Right. So Justin came to us, uh, came to me and he said, I have an idea. And I thought, okay, what's your idea? Well, I could take the swimming pool pump and I could hook it up and reverse the flow and we could just pump the water out into the backyard. <gasps> what? Now, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you that my knee jerk was to rain all over that parade. First of all, it's not, is it plausible in my mind that the 14 year old can figure out something that I can't figure out? Probably not. So I don't know why it's not a good idea, but I'm sure it's not a good idea. 
So I start searching around for some things about why it might be a good idea. Well, Justin, you can't go into the basement because the power's in the basement. You, you get electrocuted. You can't do No, no, mom. The pump is here. The pump is not submerged. All I would need to do is connect it to the power in the house and put the garden hose in there and reverse the flow. And he's got a plan. And I'm struggling to think, what is, what is it that I can tell him? It can't be done simply because you're 14 and I'm 30. And that means that your plan will not work. I've got to call dad. This was the landmark moment where I said to him, you know what? That sounds like it could work. Why don't we try it? What do you need me to do? And in that moment, Justin became, it was the first time that he kind of stepped up and held the mantle of eldest son. We were having a, we were having a moment, right? He was ready. He was going to be the, the patriarch of the family while dad was gone. And he was going to figure out how to solve the problem. I'm going to tell you, he drained out the basement with a swimming pool pump. He burned up the pump. Like we had to replace the pump. Totally ruined it. But it was worth it. Because in that moment, my son was empowered to know that he could think things through. He could figure it out. And in this case, we had empirical evidence that he could work out a problem before mom could work out a problem. My son also has really high power needs. Do you think that that was important for him? I'm going to tell you today, that child is a, a 40-year-old, which makes me, oh, I can't, I still have a hard time saying that. I don't know how I have a 40-year-old job. Um, but he's a 40-year-old who owns a very profitable business. He's a owns a trucking company. He's doing things that are just kind of miraculous to watch. And I want to believe that some of the growth of spirit that was required for him to get to where he is started within the safety and, and confines of family space where we said, I believe you can. I think you can. Show me. What do you got? Bring it to the table. Let's try to work it out. That was also a wonderful moment for me of starting to recognize that my children were moving from being, I don't want to say subordinate, but, but reliant and entirely upon me to where they were becoming my peers. Is that a frightening thought for anybody else? When you think about your children becoming your peers, are you a little bit, does that give you pause? I hope not, because it's a wonderful moment when your children become your peers and your friends. I, I hope that for each of you. So, all right, the last thing before I change up this slide is I want you to remember that visual image of the key and the keyhole. I want you to remember that your view of what's happening and your child's view are kind of like if we walked into a room and said, there's something amazing and big and vast on the other side of this door. You're not allowed to open the door, but you get to peek through the keyhole, all right? So you peek through your keyhole and your kid down here looks through his keyhole on his door. Do you get the same view of that room that's on the other, you don't. Really important to know that your child's view is valid. And he might see something that is important for you to hear. He might see a thing or understand a thing that you don't yet have the vision to see. So being able to remember that you're reviewing things through a limited perspective and you can invite your child in to share perspective with you is a very big deal. All right, now this story is one that is emotional for me to tell. Uh, I wanna tell it unless Nick, unless you would like to tell it. And I think maybe you would do it better, but I've already made you cry once today and I'm gonna to leave that up to you. Nick, you wanna tell the story or should I? 
I can. Uh, this is actually a, a probably a good good moment um, because this might be the last thing I can share because I'm going to have to run. Okay. <laughs> um, so shortly after Grayson was born, we had the chance to, to have the kids come in and meet the baby and do all the things, um, you know, introductory wise. And one of the things that that you point out, Mom, is that Bryce's face, while he looks happy, um, is kind of like happy-ish. There's a He's a bit tense um, and almost unsure about how to react in that moment. And what we uh, what we found out later that night is that as Bryce was sitting here holding my son for the first time, um, there's a lot of um, uneasiness because Bryce was born as a twin. And Bryce's twin passed away when he was young. And there was a lot of perseverating about how he didn't know his sister's name. And so he found himself pacing the hallways at the hospital and and just repeating to himself over and over again, I don't, I don't know her name, I don't know her name. And um, had a chance to sit with him in the hospital and talk about what it was that he was so worried about. And while he was uh, obviously grateful to meet Grayson, um, it was a reminder of the sister that he had lost and not knowing who she was and feeling that, that disconnectedness from that part of his life. Um, and so he and I have, have developed a nice relationship over the years and I um, have been able to, to learn together and, and talk together in a way that's fairly open and free. Um, and I've been able to connect with him in some ways that um, over the last little while, it's had been more difficult. Um, but this is one of those defining moments in our relationship where um, I was able to, to connect with him on a very personal level and understand where his heart was and why he was struggling so much with where he was emotionally um, and worked together to find a way to speak peace to his heart a bit um, and just have a, a bonding moment and a, a healing moment for him, I think, to just understand that it's okay to have that disconnectedness um, from his sister and that families are forever and, and have that conversation about what eternal families look like and, and why those things that that knowledge is important. You did that beautifully. And, and if you have to go, I want to thank you for being here and for sharing with us this was so much better and such a gift for me to have you be here with us so you go when you need to do what you need to do but thanks for being part of it with me i appreciate that absolutely gonna, thank you all for helping you know letting me participate i appreciate it very much i'm gonna i want to augment the story that nick told a little bit and just share that um nick was a better parent that day to to bryce than i was so Bryce had a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder, which is a way different training. And I won't get into all of that, but I will tell you that he was, he was given to big bouts of pretty violent behavior. So when Nick was texting me this picture and I saw that he didn't look like he was quite okay, I was really nervous. And then shortly after I get the call from Nick that um, something's wrong, he's in the hallway. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to go talk to him. And Nick's response to Bryce was to get small and sit with him and stay in his space and try to figure out what need was not being met. And my response was to say, oh, we're going to be on the news tonight. He is probably in there setting fire to the labor and delivery unit. What are we going to do? My mind was very much focused on what is external that's happening. And Nick was able to be present and think about what does he need right now? What does he need right now? And that visual image that I have in my head of an older son sitting with a younger son and just saying, I'll sit with you until you figure it out, till you're able to get it out. 
we don't have to talk. I'll just sit with you until we're able to get it out. And for him to repeat that, I don't know her name. I don't know her name. And then him fishing a little bit. Well, you don't have to know her name because first of all, it's a boy. And second of all, he's only been here for 10 minutes. You're going to have time, right? And spending enough time present in the conversation about what was under the waterline to have a moment of peace and growth where the spirit could be present and help. Where I would have been on the top of that iceberg with a pick saying, do you not? You may not. You may not have a fit in the hallway at the labor and delivery unit. There are people here with babies and they need rest and we can't do that. So there's a great, that, that was a great lesson for me about being present. This is a, we're going to run out of time and I want to give you guys time to process through some of your own situations so we can do a little bit of um, case study stuff. We can do a little bit of role play and figure out maybe some strategies that are unique to you. But I want us to think about this. There is a word that we use in, in social work called entrainment. I don't know if any of you have heard that before or not. But in plain English, it means if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And it's not just mom. It applies to everybody. There is a rhythmic energy in families. There is a way that energy moves in families. And if you come into that moment of contact and you bring with you an energy that is frustrated, tired, overwhelmed, unhappy, embarrassed, disappointed, whatever it is, make no mistake that you drag that energy with you onto the white carpeting of your family's house. It comes with you and they feel it and they respond in kind. Now, once that child receives that energy from you, it won't come back in necessarily the same way, but trust me, it will come back. It will come back. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to run across the fields and get ice cream and there was a, an electric cow fence and there's nothing like accidentally making contact with the electric cow fence when you're crawling over right you are abruptly reminded that you have come in contact with some energy that's not good i want you to start by thinking what energy do i set the tone what energy am i bringing into the room because that will determine what energy i get back in the baseline where i start my conversation and my negotiation. Kara, this is the part that I was talking about when we said you were saying, how do I tell? How do I know when I've gone too far? Or if I'm on the right track. And these are Glasser's um, list, but I'm gonna say that this, isn't it funny when people identify something that's just a truth and then they put their name on it and sell it at Barnes and Noble? You know, truth exists independent of our acceptance of it or even our recognition of it. Wise men seek it out. Um, Glasser was able to get some words on things that seemed to me like just basic truth. But here's what they are. We are coming into that conversation. The way you tell if you are in the place of light or the way of the bonfire, the place that will keep the fire going and get the child to internal control you are engaging in those habits on the left. Your responses are supportive. They are encouraging. They are, you're taking the time to listen. And you are, when I say that, I mean you are listening with an intent to understand, not an intent to respond. Mamas are really great at listening for the response. Listening is an art. And it's an important one for you to master. I want you to listen with the intent to understand 
even if on its face it's ridiculous, even if it's a conversation about if I don't get that video game or if you don't let me go to that party, my life is over, it is never going to be okay, whatever that is, listen with the intent to understand what they are seeing through their keel. You are accepting that that is their reality, whether it's yours or not. You are trusting them. Kara raised the comment about having a child who had some challenges. There is, I have a child who is diagnosed with ADD and I have a son who is diagnosed with schizophrenia. I got to tell you, the trusting piece is hard. It's hard. It's hard to keep negotiating with myself about how much I'm willing to let that child hold, how much trust I can give them. This is an important piece of building a powerful relationship. You're going to be respectful and you're going to be willing to negotiate differences. You're going to look for opportunities. You're going to look for negotiables. You know what the non-negotiables are, but you're going to look for what is negotiable so that you can bring your child into the process. On the other side of this, if you find yourself criticizing, blaming, complaining, nagging, threatening, punishing, or bribing for re or rewarding for a certain outcome, you are doing it wrong. And I'm going to tell you that these seven habits that I just rattled off were kind of my homeschooling ethos for the first year that we were doing it. I'm going to nag at you till you get it done. I'm going to threaten you that you, you're going to lose privileges if you don't do it. Not a big I'm not a big punisher, but I'm a really good complainer. I'm a really good whiner. I can keep reminding you that you didn't get it done yet. Um, and that can sound pretty critical to little ears or to young ears, to old ears for that matter. So this is the thing I want you to keep. This is the litmus test. This is the bar that you evaluate your response with. Which side are you on? Tell me, somebody tell me, where do you think you typically live? On the left side of the screen or on the right side of the screen? If, you, if nobody answers me, I'm going to assume you're all just really complaining, blaming, criticizing, nagging kind of moms. I'm trying to give opportunity for other people to answer. <laughs> I feel like I've answered a lot, but <clears throat> excuse me. I feel like it's half and half for me. Um, I feel like on my good days and I'm really trying, I can be that the seven habits on the left, um, but when on days when I'm just reverting to what I grew up with, yeah, uh, disconnecting habits. I love that you got that. You guys are doing it done early, maybe because you guys get to the point really quickly, and that really was the point to go back to that thought of entrainment. Where you fall, where you land on these lists is not in small part dependent on what energy you bring into the room. I am much more likely to have a conversation with you about sagging your pants if I am not frustrated with the fact that my neighbor just called me and said, doesn't he own a pair of pants that fit? I've got a belt. What could I give it to? So if I am frustrated with something and I bring that energy in, I am more likely to end up on the other side. I also want to honor something. If we were doing a class on marital relationships, we would be looking at these. These are this is about relationships in general, about with your employer, with the folks you go to church with, with your spouse, with your family, whoever it is. These these things are consistent, and learning to live on that 
left side where you release some of the control you have over others in order to let them carry some of the weight of their autonomy and negotiate with them how they do that and keep themselves safe. That's a powerful way to live. So I am hoping that you are considering that. We are down to 15 minutes here before we need to go. Now, real so quick, can I hop in and just say an observation? I also, you're saying that that applies to all relationships, but it occurs to me it also applies to our relationship with ourself. Um, and I think I'm on on the right of that screen often with myself. Oh, <laughs> isn't that? that. I get it. This is just an aside, but, and I hate to say it in the last 50, this will be the thing you remember of everything I said today, but Mormon women have eldest women have a remarkable gift for self-abuse we just do we just we just constantly kind of hold ourselves up against others and can with lightning speed discern where our deficiencies are and i remember as a as a convert and as a new member i would go to church and i would think you know, success for me on a Sunday morning was everybody is wearing underwear. Extra points if they're clean. If you have socks that match, we are off to a stellar week. Like, these are all good things. And I'm the mom who would grab the Oreos and put them in the snack pack before thinking about the fact that that was going to leave a black row of death in the entire back pew where we sat. Right? So I was always looking at those women whose kids looked freshly plucked from the Garden of Serenity. Their hair was appropriately braided. They were all clean and they had their little homemade quiet books and they were sitting there reverently during. I'm thinking, I, when we all get to home, y'all will have that mansion in the Celestial Kingdom and I will be in the trailer park of the Celestial Kingdom with something up on blocks. Like I'm not, I'm just not gonna be as good as the rest of you. I want you to, to consider that thing and ask yourself, go back to that. Karen, I'm so glad you brought this out. I want you to look at that and imagine how your father teaches you. How does your father respond to you? And you better never find yourself treating his daughter in a way that he would not approve. You hear what I'm saying to you? So if your father doesn't criticize or blame or complain or nag or threaten you, if he doesn't punish you or he doesn't offer you bribes and rewards for compliant behavior, don't you do it. Don't you do it. You're worth more than that. Give yourself some room. Learn what it is you want to get to and then follow those footsteps to get to that place. All right. Last 10 minutes. I want to give you some time here. That are, is there any of you that would like to talk about what the challenge might be that you're facing with your child specifically and how we could brainstorm ways that you might, some workarounds that you might be willing to try? I have one if, yeah. if okay. <laughs> um, I have a son. We're, we're much on much better terms right now, but he really, when he was, let's say four, six years ago, he really got into devices and it pulled him way away. And he was, he was the type of child that was with the people, loved to be with people, was always busy. That was like one of my biggest challenges was to keep him busy doing good things. Otherwise he would be busy doing other things. Well, the phone 
filled in that need of doing and being busy so we could barely pull him out of his room anymore. Um, so it was the the conflict and and seeing your chart on the needs and trying to figure out what his needs were and stuff. We also are a family that we we're in the foreign service. We are still. So we were bouncing from country to country every two to three years. And he he needed stability and friendship, although a lot of times he would go out and find friends that were very needy and that would pull him down. So it's been this whole um I want to give him the freedom, but I I want him to be safe. So I think I'm probably um the survival. <laughs> thing right with him especially because I just I want to give him well he needs that too so I'm I I need to process all of it but I guess at the point that we're at um we actually just went through the temple with him yesterday and he has his mission call for the end of March and I'm thrilled for him because I know he will really thrive but I want him to know how much I love him and I feel like it's really, he doesn't trust me anymore. I'm sorry. Even though at this point, I don't want to suppress what he wants and things like that. I'm trying to go along with his desires, you know, but he's does a lot of things different than I would do them, but I'm trying to give him the freedom to do that. Um, and most of the time, most days, things are really good and I'm wasting up the whole time. So I need to get your responses with this. <laughs> I just, what can I do to make him feel safe with me so that he can open up enough? He's very, he's the most important thing in his life. What can I do to, so that I can make sure he knows how much I care and love him when he won't really open up anymore? Oh gosh. I, so what I feel like I, I'm supposed to say to you may or may not land where you want it to, but I feel what you're, I, I feel that's what you're saying and I want to tell you why I feel it so there is uh, five years between my eldest son and Nick and and as I told you I was my eldest son and I kind of grew up together right so I hope I'm a better parent I was a better parent by child two three four five six seven eight than I was at number one hopefully that's the curve right <clears throat> um Justin and Nicholas both achieved their Eagle Scout both of them went on missions. I remember when Nick was baptized and I spoke at his baptism, I, I kind of went off on a tangent about how Nick was like a Nephi. He was a younger brother, but he was going to do, you know, he, he, he had a, a calling to do good things. And we were going to see that. And I didn't quite get at the time when I was saying that, that the inference was if my son Nick was Nephi, then Laman or Lemuel was my son Justin. Right? And that kind of um, came to fruition a bit. So Justin came home from his mission, and it was not the experience that maybe I wanted for him. And his life went off in a different direction after he came home from his mission. So right now, Justin is many, many things, but active in the church is not one of them. That's a heartache for me. But I want to tell you what he is. He's an exceptionally good father. He's a brilliant businessman. He's got some really cool ink that I couldn't have, but I can appreciate it on him. 
He is remarkably quick-witted and he is empathic and more than that, pragmatic. I have one of my children who's going through divorce and a really hard time. And I'm reactive when I counsel him. Justin is not because he has seen a bigger piece of the world. So his view through the keyhole is different than mine. Now, do I, does that make my heartache about the fact that he's not a church? Okay, no, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. I still have that heartache. But I want you to remember something, and that is that in the, in the time frame of eternity, we are, we're talking about nanoseconds of time, right? And I, he's not on the path that I laid out for him, but I know that the Savior is still walking in front of him. And he is most certainly still on the trajectory headed towards him. It's not up to me to judge where that lands. And trust comes when you are able to lay that down. And he knows that not only are you saying with your mouth, I trust you to figure it out. But he feels the energy in your soul that says, and that's why I'm not worried about you. I talked to the Savior about all the worries I have for you. And he's told me that you're pretty good. He's got you. I'm out of it now. Now, if you want my opinion, I'll still give it to you. I don't think you should have so much ink. I don't think you should smoke. We had a lengthy conversation. I sent him an app that calculated how much money you spend for cigarettes and what you could buy over time because of that. And my kid who's making a lot of money has a lot of really nice, cool toys. So he has like a, an Escalade a new one with all the bells and whistles. And I pointed out to him that had he stopped smoking three years ago, he could have a fleet of Escalades. Just a thought. So I'm, I'm still giving him information, but I recognize that's really all I can give him. And I've, I've been really humbled by the fact that as my kiddo who's going through divorce and some challenges, he sought out his older brother for some advice that he could have only gotten from him in the path that he's walking. Okay. Don't, don't, uh, the same way I, I admonish you to not be hard on our father's daughter. Don't be hard on his other children either. They were his before they were yours. Your job is to keep them safe. You got him that far. He's off and running. What happens from now till then? He knows how to course correct if and when he needs to right and it's only valid when he chooses it so give yourself a break mom give yourself a break anybody else have any thought did that did that land anywhere close to what you needed because i feel like i didn't give you much to i want to be able to say well here's what you do you stand on one foot and you pop them in the head with the palm of your hand and you whistle dixie and from that moment forward everything will be better yeah probably not probably not doesn't mean that it's not headed in the direction it's supposed to. I'm fortunate to have been here and I and I appreciate those um, reviews because I I'm still, as I said, I'm we're all teachers and we're all learners. So I learn how I'll do it better next time. So thank you for that. Latter-day Saint Home Educators is a nonprofit all-volunteer organization dedicated to providing inspiration to homeschool families. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in listening to more recordings or would like to participate in a future conference, please visit our website at ldshe.org.